Hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to Iris and to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, February 13th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast from KCRG. A beautiful start to the work week, but changes are on the way. Get ready for a beautiful start to the work week. This morning, we're waking up to a clear sky and temperatures in the 20s and 30s. Our sunny sky will last through the afternoon with very warm high temperatures in the 40s and 50s. Tonight, we'll be mild with lows in the 30s and a partly cloudy sky. The pattern will change on Tuesday as low-pressure system moves through the region, which will bring widespread rain showers to the area and isolated rumbles of thunder can't be ruled out. Up to half an inch of rain is possible across the region. It'll also be very windy and warm on Tuesday, with gusts higher than 40 miles per hour, along with highs in the 40s and 50s. We'll get a break from the precipitation on Wednesday, but rain and snow are expected on Thursday as a second low-pressure system travels into the Midwest. Don't be surprised if we have snow accumulation with Thursday's potential storm. Highs will stay in the 40s on Wednesdays, but cool back into the 20s and Thursdays, Thursday through Saturday. However, the 40s will likely return by Sunday. Sunrise this morning was at 7.09 a.m., and the sun sets at 5.39 p.m. Now, looking at the stories on the front page, we have U.S. states considering farmland restrictions, co-house on the prairie, Cedar Falls man killed in crash, and three are injured. And we'll begin reading the top story, Landowners Fight Pipeline Plans. Critics push to restrict use of eminent domain for CO2 pipeline plans. Story filed by Caleb McCullough of the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Landloaners and environmental activists gathered at the state capitol last week to lobby legislators to restrict carbon dioxide pipelines that are in the works across the state. Dressed in red and sporting signs and pins decrying eminent domain and CO2 pipelines, the activists have become a recurring sight at the capitol as they hope to convince lawmakers to slow the steady march of three pipeline companies seeking permission from the Iowa Utilities Board to capture carbon from Iowa ethanol plants and shuttle it underground. Pipeline-related legislation in this session has mostly come from Senator Jeff Taylor, a Republican from Sioux Center, though none of the bills he has proposed has advanced. Taylor has filed five bills related to pipeline restrictions, and they are Senate File 100, requires pipeline companies seeking eminent domain to disclose investors, and Senate File 101 eliminates eminent domain authority for hazardous liquid pipelines. Senate File 102 repeals the law allowing access to land for surveys for pipelines. Senate File 103 requires pipeline companies to gain permission from landowners before entering into easement negotiations and Senate File 104 requires pipeline companies to obtain 90% easements to be granted eminent domain. Taylor's crusade to restrict the power of pipeline companies is based on support for landowner rights, he said, not in opposition to the companies or their mission. 
He said he's sympathetic to their cause and the effort to bolster the ethanol industry, but he opposes the use of eminent domain to achieve that goal. Quote, I'm not necessarily opposed to people having these pipelines run through their land, but it should be voluntary, he said. It should not be using the power of government to force them or coerce them into granting an easement. Quote, the constitutional standard is eminent domain for public use. This isn't a public use. It's not a public utility, he added. Taylor's bills are filed in the Senate Commerce Committee, and the activists said they were hoping to encourage the committee's chair, Senator Wayland Brown, Republican from Osage, to schedule public hearings on the bills. Quote, Democratic process involves subcommittees where people can weigh in and express their opinions, and denying that to people who are impacted by the biggest things happening to Iowa is a disservice to all Iowans, said Jeff Mazur, Conservation Program Coordinator for the Iowa Chapter of the Sierra Club. Brown did not respond to a request for comment. Eminent Domain Bill The bill banning eminent domain for pipeline companies was the chief interest of the coalition gathered at the Capitol, many of whom are refusing to sign voluntary easement negotiations with the pipeline companies seeking to build through their land. Carbon dioxide pipelines are regulated by the Iowa Utilities Board, and as public utilities, they have the authority of eminent domain, the taking of private property for projects that benefit the public, if granted by the state. But opponents of the pipelines argue that, as privately owned projects, they don't serve a public good. Quote, it's really strongly offensive to us as people when the government is going to allow our land to be condemned just for the sake of private profit and not for the good of our communities, said Jessica Wiskus, a landowner from Lynn County. Landowners also said they felt harassed by the pipeline company, surveyors going on their land without permission. Dan Wall from Dickinson County is one of several landowners being sued by Summit Carbon Solutions for refusing entry to his land. Quote, they've demanded since day one that they're going to take my land, whether I agree to it or not, Wall said. Iowa law gives pipeline companies and other public utilities the right to survey land along a proposed route after giving 10 days' notice by mail to the landowner. Under those conditions, the entry is not deemed a trespass. But a lawyer representing Wall and several other landowners is arguing in court that the law allowing entry is unconstitutional. One of Taylor's bills would remove that provision entirely. Quote, I think the pipeline companies have a point, Taylor said. The way I read the Iowa Code, they seem to have the right at the moment. But I don't think that's proper. I don't think it's appropriate. So I would like to see the law changed, so that would be trespassing without permission, unquote. Three CO2 pipeline projects are being proposed in the state. Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Carbon Express plans 680 miles of pipeline across 29 northern, western, and central counties. Wolf Carbon Solutions Pipeline would cover four counties in eastern Iowa. Navigator CO2 Ventures Heartland Greenway would cover 900 miles from northwest to southeast corners of the state, 
with offshoots along the way. The projects are intended to capture carbon dioxide emitted from ethanol plants to store deep underground in either Illinois or North Dakota in an attempt to lower carbon emissions created by the plants. For the ethanol industry, reliance on carbon capture pipelines could be the difference between survival and closing down. Iowa Renewable Fuel Association Executive Director Monty Shaw told lawmakers last week, states such as California and Oregon have mandated clean fuel standards, and federal tax credits bolstered by the recent Inflation Reduction Act will improve ethanol's profitability if they meet certain low carbon levels. Shaw said these pressures mean without a mechanism of lowering ethanol's carbon intensity, ethanol production would likely move to a state where plants have access to carbon pipelines. Quote, there is a very real, very new dynamic in our economics that is going to make or break ethanol production over the next five years, he said at a hearing of the House Environmental Protection Committee. Quote, and Iowa has the most to gain from this new economic reality, and it has the most to lose from not aligning, unquote. But to be built, the pipelines need to go across hundreds of miles of land, and some landowners are not ready to allow their land to be used for the projects. Summit and Navigator have both indicated an intent to use eminent domain for the projects, but they have not finalized the extent of their request as they work to obtain voluntary easements. Summit Carbon Solutions, which is the farthest along in the permitting process, has received voluntary easements for more than two-thirds of the proposed route in the state, or 1,060 Iowa landowners. Summit spokesman Jesse Harris said in an email, quote, This overwhelming level of support tells us Iowa landowners along the route view the project as critical to supporting the state's most important industries, ethanol and agriculture, Harris said. We look forward to continuing to work with landowners, stakeholders, and policymakers to advance our nearly $987 million investment in Iowa's future, unquote. Andrew Bates, a spokesperson for Navigator, said in an emailed statement, Iowa has, quote, one of the most robust, thorough processes already in place for pipeline construction, and the company does not want to see changes to that process. Quote, we are committed to working collaboratively with landowners and negotiating in good faith to secure as much of the project footprint in a voluntary fashion as possible, he said. Representatives for Wolf Carbon Solutions, on the other hand, have said they don't plan to use eminent domain for the project. Taylor said he has received some pushback from ethanol companies in his district for introducing the legislation. Quote, they're primarily looking at it from a point of view of making money for themselves and for their companies and for their co-ops, and that's fine, but I have broader perspective, he said, quote, looking out for good government, looking out for constitutional government, unquote. While Taylor's proposals have not seen action in the Senate, House Speaker Pat Grassley, Republican from New Hartford, said he expects House Republicans will file a bill this week addressing eminent domain and carbon pipelines, but he left details sparse on its contents. 
He said he hasn't had a conversation with the full House Republican caucus on what they would support. Quote, I want to have a conversation with the caucus before I come out and say what that would be, he said. I want to make sure there's a level of comfort, unquote. Democratic Senate leader Zach Walls of the Coralville said discussions around pipeline regulations have been happening without Democratic input, despite Democrats' interest in finding a bipartisan policy to address landowners' concerns. Quote, Republicans have not been willing to have that conversation, he said. Quote, they're trying to handle things purely internally, so until there is a decision by the Republican leadership to try to have a bipartisan dialogue about this, there's no compromise possible, unquote. Missouri said she thinks there is enough support to pass a bill restricting eminent domain rights for pipeline companies. Quote, we have enough votes in both chambers, between the Democrats and Republicans, to get these bills passed, she said. It's going to be, is there a will from leadership to put landowners and Iowans over these pipeline companies, unquote. Our next story comes to us from the Associated Press. U.S. and states weigh farmland restrictions after Chinese balloon. Dateline, Harlowton, Montana. Near the banks of Montana's Muscle Shell River, cattle rancher Michael Miller saw a large white orb above the town of Harlowton earlier this month, a day before U.S. officials revealed they were tracking a suspected Chinese spy balloon over the state. The balloon caused a stir in the 900-person town, surrounded by cattle ranches, wind farms, and scattered nuclear missile silos behind chain-link fences. Miller worries about China as a rising threat to the United States, but questioned how much intelligence could be gained from a balloon. China's bigger threat, he said, is to the U.S. economy. Like many throughout the country, Miller wonders if stricter laws are needed to bar farmland sales to foreign nationals so power over agriculture and the food supply doesn't end up in the wrong hands. Quote, it's best not to have a foreign entity buying up land, especially one that's not really friendly to us, Miller said. They are just going to take us over economically instead of military-wise, unquote. Miller's concerns are increasingly shared by U.S. lawmakers after the Chinese balloon's voyage over America's skies inflamed tensions between Washington and Beijing. In Congress and state houses, the balloon's journey added traction to decades-old concerns about foreign land ownership. U.S. Senator John Tester, a Democrat, is sponsoring legislation to include agriculture as a factor in national security decisions, allowing foreign real estate investments. Quote, the bottom line is, we don't want folks from China owning our farmland. It goes against food security, and it goes against national security, Tester told the Associated Press. At least 11 state legislatures also are considering measures to address the concern. That includes Montana and North Dakota, where the U.S. Air Force recently warned that a 700 million corn mill proposed near the military base by the American subsidiary of a Chinese company would risk national security. City council members in Grand Forks, North Dakota, endured a barrage of criticism 
from town residents Monday night before voting 5-0 to zero to abandon the plan. The move came a year after a joint press release from local officials and North Dakota's governor called the project extraordinary, saying it would bring jobs and bolster the farm industry. Enraged residents of the 59,000-person city near the Minnesota border demanded resignations from city council members they claimed had tried to push through the plan, brushing off Chinese threats to national security. Quote, you decided, for whatever reason, this was such a fantastic thing for our city that you got blinders on, said Dexter Perkins, a University of North Dakota geology professor. Quote, you guys went all in when there were a gazillion unanswered questions, unquote. Before the Air Force's warning, officials said they weren't in a position to opine on national security matters. Foreign entities and individuals control less than 3% of U.S. farmland, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Of that, those with ties to China control less than 1%, or roughly 600 square miles. Yet in recent years, transactions of agricultural and non-agricultural land have attracted scrutiny, particularly in states with a large U.S. military presence. Limitations on foreign individuals or entities owning farmland vary widely throughout the U.S. Most states allow it, while 14 states, including Iowa, have restrictions. No states have a total prohibition. Of the five states where the Federal Agriculture Department says entities with ties to China own the most farmland, four don't limit foreign ownership. North Carolina, Virginia, Texas, and Utah. The fifth state, Missouri, has a cap on foreign land ownership that state lawmakers want to make more stringent. Ownership restriction supporters often speculate about foreign buyers' motives and whether people with ties to adversaries such as China intend to use land for spying or exerting control over the U.S. food supply. Texas, in 2021, banned infrastructure deals with individuals tied to hostile governments, including China. The policy came after a Chinese army veteran and real estate tycoon purchased a wind farm in a border town near a U.S. Air Force base. This year, Texas Republicans want to expand that with a ban against land purchases by individuals and entities from hostile countries, including China. Critics see it as anti-foreigner hysteria, with Texas's Asian-American community particularly concerned about the effect on immigrants who want to buy homes and build businesses. In Utah, concern has centered on a Chinese company's purchase of a speedway near an army depot in 2015, and Chinese-owned farms exporting alfalfa and hay from drought-stricken parts of the state. Lawmakers this year are considering two proposals that would, to varying degrees, ban entities with ties to foreign governments from owning land. Caitlin Welsh, director of the Global Food Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, said worries about China controlling the food supply were overblown. Quote, China is just a small slice of the bigger picture of foreign ownership, Welsh said. When it comes to food security, the biggest threat 
is that foreign owners can potentially pay a higher price for agricultural land, which then drives up prices, unquote. Our next story is titled Co-House on the Prairie, and it begins with a photograph of two women working together in the kitchen to provide a tasty communal meal. Story has been submitted by Aaron Jordan and Bailey Sakoon. Iowa City's co-housing neighborhood is filling up. Dateline, Iowa City. Prairie Hill, where residents solve problems by passing a talking stick. Many have solar panels, and there's a ukulele club. May sound something like that could happen only in Iowa City. But Prairie Hill residents, some of whom have moved from other states just to live there, say the co-housing concept found there is gaining popularity as some Americans decide their lives are richer when shared with others. Quote, loneliness is an epidemic with older folks, said Val Bowman, 76, who relocated from California in 2018 with her husband John, 85. Quote, this is an antidote to loneliness, unquote. Ten years after the founders bought an eight-acre parcel off Benton Street, southwest of downtown Iowa City, Prairie Hill is developing the last of 11 buildings, four of the five units in it already are sold, with homeowners expected to move in by June. It's been a long and sometimes arduous path for Iowa's first co-housing neighborhood, which soon will have 37 units and more than 50 residents, but founders and homeowners are proud of what they built. At 4 p.m. on Tuesday, Mary Beth Vestgrove bustles around the Prairie Hill Common House Kitchen. The chili is in the slow cooker, but Verse Grove and Marianne Reynolds still need to make cornbread to complete their meal for a tasty Tuesday. Residents take turns making meals, and residents show up at 6 p.m. to eat. Bill Holland, a 75-year-old retired teacher, arrives a few minutes early and draws himself a pint of dark Scottish-style beer from a keg cooler in the kitchen pantry. He and others in the neighborhood have been experimenting with brewing beer and kombucha. Quote, I've been in meetings and doing stuff all day, and now I don't have to cook, he said of the meal, which costs $5. The pantry also holds an appliance library where residents can check out an electric mixer, ice cream maker, and fondue pot among dozens of other large appliances. Francis Gertz, 77, who moved from Rochester, Minnesota after 30 years at IBM and another 30 years as a piano tuner, stops by the common house to pick up a key to the tool shop where residents can borrow just about any tool you could want from a hammer to a drill press. Gertz was looking for a dolly to help another resident move a piece of exercise equipment. Sitting at a table in the Prairie Hill dining room is Fiona Popplecane, eight, using a stylus to draw on her new tablet. Quote, I heard the old one went through the laundry, said Holland, a smile on his lips. Fiona is one of three children, ages six to ten, who live in the Prairie Hill with their families. Bauman, who does sales and marketing for the neighborhood, said she expects more young families will move into Prairie Hill as the neighborhood matures and founding homeowners sell their properties. Quote, I like that I can walk around the neighborhood, Fiona said. She and her sister, Anya, 10, 
stop by neighbors' houses to pet cats or just to say hello. The common house is a kid's playroom, but Fiona is more interested in the piano and the pool table. Back in the 1970s, when planned communities were called communes, Craig Mosier helped create a 200-person international community in an abandoned candy factory in San Francisco. Mosier, 79, moved to Iowa, raised a family, directed social service agencies, and served as a social work professor at Luther College in Decorah. Quote, When I retired at Luther in 2016 and heard there was co-housing down here in Iowa City, I thought, Aha! Mosier said. In the early meetings for Prairie Hill, Mosier met Marcia Schaefer, whose husband of 50 years had died and grown sons had moved out, leaving her with too much house. Mosier and Schaefer married in 2017 and now live on the top level of a shared building in Prairie Hill. Founders remember the struggle to find land and convinced lenders the co-housing model would work. In Prairie Hill, members serve as both the developers of the housing and members of the Homeowners Association. They almost gave up in 2013 when they couldn't figure out where to site buildings on the steep hillside plot without snarling traffic on Benton Street. They met at the site and stood in a circle, passing a talking stick. Suddenly, someone had the idea they build the houses on the bottom part of the parcel, allowing cars to enter and exit from Miller Avenue, Varsk Grove said. Quote, at the time, it seemed like an undoable task, she said. But when it's done, it's such a relief, unquote. When there's a conflict in Prairie Hill, members sort through it using sociocracy, a governance system focused on allowing everyone to speak, not just those who are loudest or have the most seniority. Sustainability is a common value at Prairie Hill. It starts with building the houses into the hillside to take advantage of the windbreak and heat from the earth. Builders add extra insulation and tape the joints up tight to retain heat and cool air. You pay a little more up front to buy a super-insulated house, but you pay less money down the road in heating, Mosher said. The one remaining unit for sale is an 800-square-foot, three-bedroom house that costs $330,000. That includes use of the eight-acre property and common house. Association dues cover Wi-Fi, garbage, and snow removal for four inches or more, and a reserve fund for major expenses, Bauman said. All the Prairie Hill units have ductless heating and cooling units. These heat pumps have head units mounted on interior walls or ceilings with an accompanying unit outside. The outside part extracts heat from the air, even when it's cold, and pumps the heated air into the house. In the summer, the system works in reverse. Because of the unit's transfer energy rather than generate heat, they can use up to 60% less energy than most home radiators, EnergyStar.gov reported. The heating and cooling units are electric, as are all other appliances at Prairie Hill. At 800 square feet, the average Prairie Hill house is half the size of the average single-family home in Iowa. Other units range from a 500-square-foot studio to a 1,400-square-foot three-bedroom. Rather than maintaining a big house, 
for the couple of times a year a grown children come to visit. Prairie Hill residents can reserve the common house dining room for a reunion and one or two guest rooms for visitors. There are more than 160 co-housing neighborhoods in the United States, according to a 2018 New York Times article, but they aren't common. Holland has been contacted by people in Nevada, Ames, and Pleasant Hill who want to know more about how Prairie Hill was developed. Quote, I'm talking with a family interested in doing another one in northeast Iowa, Mosier added. Sometimes young people are the most keen on co-housing, but they can't afford to buy a new house with all the sustainability features, Mosier said. Prairie Hill has a program to help provide down payment assistance to some homeowners. Co-housing neighborhoods in Boulder, Colorado, Madison, Wisconsin, and Sebastopol, California, seek to maintain some or all of their homes for low- to mid-income residents. Quote, it can also work for homelessness, said Marsha Mosier. People have bedrooms, and there's a common house, unquote. And now, listeners, we want to remind you that you're listening to the recording of the Waterloo-Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, February 13th, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now, since there are no obituaries in today's issue, let's turn to the opinion section. Our first opinion piece today is Randy Evans' Stray Thoughts column. This one is titled, Governor Supports a Different Indoctrination, and it first appeared in the Storm Lake Times pilot. A recent public opinion poll found that three-quarters of Americans want members of Congress to end their bickering and begin compromising more with their colleagues from the other party. The poll was conducted across the United States by Marist College's Institute for Public Opinion for National Public Radio and the PBS NewsHour. If such a poll were conducted in Iowa, it's my hunch the pollsters would find people here have similar views of the inability or unwillingness of senators and representatives in Washington to engage in the thoughtful give-and-take art of lawmaking. It is also my hunch that Iowans are at a similar point with respect to the legislature's recent string of proposed laws that target our 327 public school districts. That hunch gelled even before Governor Kim Reynolds signaled last week where she may be headed next in her quest to transform public schools. Her new goal should bother freedom-loving moms and dads and others who understand what our founding fathers wanted when they established the United States. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Reynolds addressed a gathering of a few hundred people at a forum organized by a national group called Moms for Liberty. The group advocates for changes in state laws to give parents more say in how public K-12 schools operate. The governor says Iowa needs to, quote, restore sanity to make sure our schools are a place of learning and not indoctrination, unquote. She floated the idea of changing Iowa law so that if one school district decides to remove a book from its libraries or classrooms, then every other school district would be required to move that same book and allow students to read it only with their parents' permission. The governor believes public school districts are dominated by, quote, an extreme and extremely loud minority, unquote, 
who are hostile to parents' values. She criticized public schools for demonizing our country and for having an obsession with race in the classroom. It is important to note, however, that Reynolds did not cite specific examples to buttress her claims. It is also important to note that demographics of Iowa school districts vary widely, from some that are made up of nearly all Caucasian kids to some in which most students are not Caucasian, to others in which students come from families where dozens of different languages are spoken at home. Reynolds did not share with her audience how Iowa School's current book review process works when complaints are made by people in the community or by students. That is important because these decisions to keep, remove, or restrict access to certain books involve committees of educators, students, and ordinary citizens, and school superintendents and the school boards elected by voters ultimately are the final arbiters. School districts also have policies in place now that allow parents to ask that their child not be given a certain book for classroom assignments and not be allowed to check out certain books from school libraries. What is troubling about Reynolds's latest proposal is that it would allow a handful of parents in one school to substitute their judgment for the book decisions that rightfully should be made by tens of thousands of other parents across Iowa. And the logistics of complying with such an ill-conceived law could quickly overwhelm teachers and administrators. The idea of banning books runs counter to most people's concept of freedom. It seems to be a practice more common in authoritarian countries rather than the world's leading democracy. If there are books some parents do not want their children reading, those parents already have a way to keep those books out of their kids' hands at school. No one is taking away that role from parents. But those parents should not have veto power over the books that other parents are comfortable allowing their kids to read. Many of those comfortable parents realize the Internet has content accessible to anyone, including school kids, that is far more graphic and more offensive than anything students will find in their school library. PEN America, a national nonprofit organization that advocates for free expression, issued a report last fall that said Texas schools banned more books from their libraries than any other state, 801 books in 22 school districts. Most of the books dealt with race, racism, abortion, and LGBTQ topics. Through history, officials have tried to ban access to such acclaimed titles as To Kill a Mockingbird, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Suzanne Nozzle, Penn America's top executive, said in a statement issued with the banned book report, quote, This censorious movement is turning our public schools into political battlegrounds, leaving wedges within communities, forcing teachers and librarians from their jobs, and casting a chill over the spirit of open inquiry and intellectual freedom that underpin a flourishing democracy, unquote. Randy Evans, our author, is the executive director of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council and a longtime journalist and editor in Iowa. Next, we have an opinion piece that appeared in the New York Times, authored by Nicholas Kristoff. Two-thirds of kids struggle to read, and we know how to fix it. A lovely aphorism holds 
that education isn't the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire. But too often, neither are pails filled nor fires lit. One of the most bearish statistics for the future of the United States is this. Two-thirds of fourth graders in the United States are not proficient in reading. Reading may be the most important skill we can give children. It's the pilot light of that fire. Yet we fail to ignite that pilot light. So today, some one in five adults in the United States struggles with basic literacy. And after more than 25 years of campaigns and fads, American children are still struggling to read. Eighth graders today are actually a hair worse at reading than their counterparts were in 1998. One explanation gaining ground is that, with the best of intentions, we grown-ups have bungled the task of teaching kids to read. There is growing evidence from neuroscience and careful experiments that the United States has adopted reading strategies that just don't work very well, and that we haven't relied enough on a simple starting point, helping kids learn to sound out words with phonics. Quote, too much reading instruction is not based on what the evidence says, noted Nancy Madden, a professor at John Hopkins University, who is an expert on early literacy. Quote, that's pretty clear. At least half of the kids in the U.S. are not getting effective reading instruction. Other experts agree. Ted Mitchell, an education veteran at nearly every level, who is now president of the American Council on Education, thinks that easily a majority of children are getting subpar instruction. Others disagree, of course, but an approach called the science of reading has gained ground, and it rests on a bed of phonics instruction. I'm focusing on national policy, but parents also play a role. It can be dangerous to listen to kids. You'll be talked into buying a video game, so read to them. I've offered my suggestions for the best kids' books ever, and truly one of the best reasons to have kids is the chance to read to them. I spent much of the 1980s and 1990s as a New York Times correspondent in East Asia, and children there, including mine, learned to read through phonics and phonic alphabets. Hiragana in Japan, Baba Mofu in Taiwan, Pinyin in China, and Hangul in South Korea. Then I returned with my family to the United States in 1999, and I found that even reading was political. Republicans endorsed phonics, so I was expected, as a good liberal, to roll my eyes. The early critique of phonics, in part, was rooted in social justice, trying to address inadequate education in inner cities by offering more engaging reading materials. The issue became more political when the 2000 Republican Party platform called for, quote, an early start in phonics, and when President George W. Bush embraced phonics with a major initiative called Reading First. For liberals, Bush's support for phonics made it suspect. That had some basis. The Reading First program was not well implemented, and careful evaluations showed it had little impact. It died. I became intrigued by the failures in reading after listening to a riveting six-part podcast sold a story that argues passionately that the education establishment ignored empirical evidence and unintentionally harmed children. Quote, kids are not being taught how to read because for decades teachers 
have been sold an idea about reading and how children learn to do it. Emily Hanford, a public radio journalist who for years has focused on reading issues, says in the first of the podcasts. She told me that the podcast has had more than 3.5 million downloads. One of the targets of the podcast is Lucy Calkins, a professor at Columbia University Teachers College who has a widely used reading curriculum. Calkins has acknowledged learning from the science of reading movement and from Hanford, and she told me how she has modified her curriculum as a result. But she also says that phonics was always part of her approach and that media narratives are oversimplified. As Calkins and others revise their materials, skeptics worry that curricula still aren't fully committed to phonics, but layer it onto other strategies, leaving students befuddled. It's easy to be glib in describing these reading wars. Everyone agrees that phonics are necessary, and everyone also agrees that phonics are not enough. Quote, yes, phonics matters, but how you do phonics matters too, and the rest of the stuff matters as well, said Madden. She runs a nonprofit, Success for All, that is one of the most evidence-based organizations for improving reading, and rigorous evaluations have shown excellent results. Success for All was one of the nonprofits in my 2022 Holiday Giving Guide. Huge thanks to my readers for donating more than $6 million to them. What's clear is that when two-thirds of American kids are not proficient at reading, we're failing the next generation. We can fix this imperfectly. If we're relentlessly empirical and focus on the evidence, it's also noteworthy that lots of other interventions help and aren't controversial. Tutoring, access to books, and coaching parents on reading to children, and slashing child poverty, which child tax credits accomplished very successfully until they were cut back. Onward. Next, we have an opinion piece written by Paul Krugman of the New York Times titled, Why Republican Politicians Still Hate Medicare. The Republicans who now control the House will soon try to slash Social Security and Medicare. They plan to achieve this by holding the economy hostage, threatening to create a financial crisis by refusing to raise the federal debt ceiling. The interesting questions are why they want to do this, given that it appears politically suicidal, and how Democrats will respond. Before I get into the puzzles, let me start by pointing out that the plot against the social safety net isn't a conspiracy theory. The general shape of the scheme has been widely reported for months. The arithmetic is also clear. It isn't possible to achieve huge reductions in the budget deficit while depriving the IRS of the resources it needs to go after tax cheats without deep cuts in popular social programs. And beyond all that, we now have it in black and white. Well, blue on blue. CNN has obtained a screenshot of a slide presented at a closed-door Republican meeting on Tuesday. The first bullet point calls for balancing the budget within 10 years, which is mathematically impossible without deep cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. The second calls for reforms to mandatory spending, which is budget-speak for the same programs. And the final point calls for refusing to raise the debt limit 
until these demands are met. So the plan isn't a mystery. I would add only that if Republicans try to assure currently retired Americans that their benefits won't be affected, this promise isn't feeble, not if they're serious about balancing the budget within a decade. But where is this determination to gut programs that are crucial to well over 100 million Americans coming from? These programs are, after all, extremely popular even among Republican voters. It's true that self-identified Republicans say that they are vehemently opposed to socialism, but when an economist YouGov poll asked them which programs they considered socialistic, none of the big-ticket items made the cut. Social Security? Not socialism. Medicare, which is, by the way, a single-payer national health insurance program, which we're often told Americans would never accept, also isn't socialism. Unfortunately, that poll didn't ask about Medicaid, a program targeted at lower-income Americans that many Republicans consider a form of welfare. Even so, a Kaiser Family Foundation survey found far more Republicans approving of Medicare than disapproving. One reason even Republicans support major social programs may be that GOP support comes disproportionately from older voters, and most of America's social spending goes to seniors. This is obviously true for Social Security and Medicare, which kick in primarily when you reach a minimum age. But it's even true for Medicaid. Most of Medicaid's beneficiaries are relatively young, but almost two-thirds of the spending goes to seniors and the disabled, many in nursing homes. The attitude of the Republican rank and file, then, seems to be that big government is bad. But when we get down to specifics, don't cut you, don't cut me, cut that fellow behind the tree, which means that the priorities of the new House majority are wildly out of line with those of its own voters, let alone those of the electorate as a whole. And history says that attacks on the safety net come with a heavy political price. George W. Bush's attempt to privatize Social Security in 2005 surely played a role in the Democratic takeover of Congress in 2006. Donald Trump's attempt to kill Obamacare helped Nancy Pelosi regain the speakership in 2018. So where is the push to gut Social Security and Medicare coming from? Ronald Reagan left the White House 34 years ago. The modern GOP seems much less animated by small government ideology than by the desire to wage culture war. And there's no necessary connection between culture war and right-wing economics. For example, France's anti-immigrant national rally has, in effect, staked out an economic position somewhere to the left of the Macron government. Put it this way, advocating a welfare state for white people might be politically effective, but in America, it's a road not taken. Here's what I think is going on. Even now, many, perhaps most, Republicans in Congress aren't culture war zealots. Instead, they're careerists who depend both for campaign contributions and for post-Congress career prospects on the same billionaires who have supported right-wing economic ideology for decades. They won't stand up to the crazies and the conspiracy theorists, but their own agenda is still tax cuts for the rich and benefit cuts for the poor and middle class. 
and the culture warriors go along because they basically aren't interested in policy substance. I'm not completely sure that this analysis is right, but all indications are that at some point this year, Biden administration will have to deal with a full-scale effort at economic blackmail, a threat to blow up the economy unless the safety net is shredded, and I worry that Democrats still aren't taking that threat seriously enough. And now, let's turn to the sports page, and as you can probably guess, the lead story is about the Super Bowl, Chiefs 38, Eagles 35. Mahomes rallies Chiefs to victory. Dateline, Glendale, Arizona. Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes returned to the field for the second half of the Super Bowl after he hurt his already ailing right ankle while getting tackled by Philadelphia Eagles linebacker T.J. Edwards late in the first half Sunday. Then he led the Chiefs to victory as Kansas City erased a 10-point halftime deficit to beat the Eagles 38-35. Mahomes led the Chiefs on a four consecutive second-half scoring drives, throwing touchdown passes to Cadadrius Tony and Sky Moore to rally Kansas City from a 24-14 halftime deficit to a 35-27 lead midway through the fourth quarter. Jalen Hurts rushed for his third touchdown with 5 minutes 15 seconds left in the game, a Super Bowl record for rushing touchdowns by a quarterback. Then he added a two-point conversion run to tie the game at 35-all. But Mahomes had the answer as his 26-yard scramble to the Philadelphia 17 at the two-minute warning set up Harrison Butker to nail a 27-yard field goal to win it with eight seconds left. The all-pro quarterback, who first hurt the ankle three weeks ago against Jacksonville, no doubt benefited from a longer halftime to allow for Rihanna's performance at State Farm Stadium. He was among the first players out of the tunnel once the field was cleared of the stage, grabbing a ball and immediately beginning warm-up tosses. Mahomes' ankle was a big question mark for the AFC Championship game, when he only had a week to recover from the initial injury, but he insisted this week that he felt good on it. Chiefs coach Andy Reid likewise said his star quarterback had no limitation as they put together the game plan for the Super Bowl. Mahomes was moving around well on it the first half Sunday, too. He scrambled for a big gain on Kansas City's opening series and was doing a good job of buying time against the NFL's top-ranked team in sacks this season. Then came the fateful series when the Chiefs were trying to match a touchdown that gave the Eagles a 21-14 lead. Mahomes was flushed from the pocket, stepped forward and scrambled to his left, then Edwards lassoed him and spun him to the ground. Mahomes lay there for a moment with his face mask buried in the turf, before getting to his feet and hobbling to the sideline in a near-carbon copy of the image from three weeks ago at Arrowhead Stadium, as Mahomes sat on the bench, grimacing in pain. The Chiefs punted the ball back to the Eagles, who promptly drove downfield and added a field goal as time expired to take a 24-14 halftime lead. Now in college women's basketball, UNI surges to tie 
for MVC lead. This is written by the Courier staff. Dateline, Valparaiso, Indiana. Northern Iowa scored 22 points off turnovers and made 24 of 28 free throw attempts as the Panthers rolled to an 83-60 Missouri Valley Conference victory over Valparaiso Sunday afternoon. Maya McDermott had 19 points and 7 assists, while Grace Buffelli had a double-double with 15 points and 11 rebounds to lead UNI. The Panthers improved to 17-6 and overall and 12-2 and in the MVC as UNI surged into a tie for the conference lead with the victory and Illinois State's loss at home to Missouri State on Sunday. The victory also saw UNI head coach Tanya Warren reach a pair of milestones. Warren picked up a career win 300 and set the MVC record for most games coached at 507 games. Quote, Today was another terrific team win, Warren said. I couldn't be prouder of this team and how they played. After a gritty and tough game on Friday, the togetherness we showed on offense today was the response we wanted. Quote, As for the milestones today, I can't say enough about the past and present people who have helped me throughout the course of my journey. This milestone could not be possible without them. This is way bigger than me. It always has been. It's a lot to take in. It's hard to process what I was introduced to this game at five and for 50 plus years had my dad at my side. We lost him in June and I'm still trying to process all of this without him. It's a lot and I'm extremely blessed to be surrounded by amazing people. Our administration, our staff, our players. This is all a credit to everybody that's been part of this program. Unquote. The Panthers will have a chance to take the outright lead when it hosts Illinois State as part of their pink-out game Thursday at the McLeod Center in a 6 p.m. tip-off. UNI beat the Redbirds 74-64 to in normal on January 1st. Emerson Green hit a pair of free throws to open the game, and in what turned out to be a tight opening quarter, as UNI led for much of the first seven minutes, before the Beacons' Ali Sanders hit a three-pointer on a fast break with three minutes, 51 seconds to go, and Leah Ernest made a layup with three minutes, 14 left to give Valparaiso its first lead at 11-10. to 10. The game was tied at 13 when Buffelli made a pair of free throws to push the Panthers back ahead, and you and I closed the quarter on a 6-0 run and never trailed again. The Panthers led by as much as 13 in the second quarter and led 37-26 to at the half. UNI dominated out of the break, outscoring the Beacons 24-14 to in the third quarter and held Valparaiso off in the fourth for a 23-point win. Cam Findlay and Keba Laube each added nine points, while Cynthia Wolfe had eight. Now back to local news. Fire damages Waterloo Townhouse early Sunday. Filed by Jeff Reinitz. Waterloo. An early morning fire damaged a Waterloo Townhouse Sunday. Crews with Waterloo Fire Rescue were called to 434 Belmont Street around 12.10 a.m. Sunday 
and found a fire burning in the kitchen. The residents fled the building safely, and the blaze was quickly extinguished. No injuries were reported, and the Red Cross was notified to provide emergency shelter to the residents. The building is owned by Hawthorne Rentals Incorporated, according to property records. Next, police investigate overnight gunfire in Waterloo. Police are investigating an overnight shooting in Waterloo. Officers were called to a report of gunfire at about 2.24 a.m. Sunday and found a vehicle had been shot. The vehicle was occupied at the time of the shooting, but no injuries were reported. Police found spent shell casings in the area of West 7th Street and Lorraine Avenue. No arrests have been made in the shooting. And now, friends, that's going to do it for the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Monday, February 13th on IRIS. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can access a recording of today's reading of the Courier and other newspapers around the state of Iowa at our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to Your IRIS. I was first and only radio reading service. <music>